Chapter 22 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 22 The Years Between the Wars Constantinople, the Knight of Power a strange creature, Durando, dramatic adventures, the Congo agitation, Olympic Games, divorce reform, psychic experience, speculation. Years of peaceful work followed my marriage, broken only by two journeys to the Mediterranean, in the course of which we explored some out-of-the-way portions of Greece and visited Egypt where I found hardly one single man left of all the good fellows whom I had once known. In the course of our travels we visited Constantinople, looking at the great guns in the forts on the Dardanelles, with little thought of all the British lives which would be sacrificed upon those low, dark, heather-clad hills which sloped down to the northern shore. In Constantinople we attended the weekly Salamlik of Abdul Hamid, and saw him with his dyed beard, and the ladies of his harem, as they passed down to their devotions. It was an incredible sight to Western eyes to see the crowd of officers and officials, many of them fat and short of wind, who ran like dogs behind his carriage, in the hope that they might catch the imperial eye. It was Ramadan, and the old sultan sent me a message that he had read my books, and that he would gladly have seen me, had it not been the holy month. He interviewed me through his chamberlain, and presented me with the order of the Medjedi, and, what was more pleasing to me, he gave the order of the Chevakat to my wife. As this is the order of compassion, and as my wife ever since she set foot in Constantinople had been endeavouring to feed the horde of starving dogs who roam the streets, no gift could have been more appropriate. We were admitted secretly and by very special favour into the great mosque of Sophia, during the sacred festival, which is known as the Night of Power. It was a most marvellous spectacle, as from the upper circle of pillared arches we looked down upon sixty thousand lighted lamps and twelve thousand worshippers, who made, as they rose and fell in their devotions, a sound like the wash of the sea. The priests in their high pulpits were screaming like seagulls, and fanaticism was in the air. It was at this moment that I saw a woman, I will not call her a lady, young and flighty, seat herself jauntily on the edge of the stone parapet, and look down at the twelve thousand men who were facing us. No unbeliever should be tolerated there, and a woman was the abomination of abominations. I heard a low, deep growl, and saw fierce, bearded faces looking up. It only needed one fiery spirit to head the rush, and we should have been massacred with the poor consolation that some of us at least had really asked for it. However, she was pulled down, and we made our way as quickly and as quietly as possible out of a side door. It was time, I think. One curious incident of our journey stands out in my memory. We were steaming past Tegina on a lovely day, with calm water around us. The captain, a courteous Italian, had allowed us to go upon the bridge, and we, my wife and I, were looking down into the transparent depths when we both clearly saw a creature which has never, so far as I know, been described by science. 
It was exactly like a young Ichthyosaurus, about four feet long, with thin neck and tail and four marked side flippers. The ship had passed it before we could call any other observer. I was interested to notice that Admiral Anstruther, in the evening news, some years later, described and drew an exactly similar creature, which he had seen under water off the Irish coast. This old world has got some surprises for us yet. Here and there, as I look back at those long and happy years, some particular episode flashes vividly into my memory. I do not often do journalistic work. Why should one poach upon the preserves of others? But on the occasion of the Olympic Games of 1908, I was tempted, chiefly by the offer of an excellent seat, to do the marathon race for the Daily Mail. It was certainly a wonderful experience, for it will be known to history as the Durando race. Perhaps a few short paragraphs from my description may even now recapture the thrill of it. The huge crowd, some 50,000 people, were all watching the entrance to the stadium, the dark gap through which the leader must appear. Then, at last he came, but how different from the exultant victor whom we expected. Out of the dark archway there staggered a little man with red running drawers, a tiny boy-like creature, he reeled as he entered, and faced the roar of the applause. Then he feebly turned to the left and wearily trotted round the track. Friends and encouragers were pressing round him. Suddenly the whole group stopped. There were wild gesticulations. Men stooped and rose again. Good heavens! He has fainted. Is it possible that even at this last moment the prize may slip through his fingers? Every eye slides round to that dark archway. No second man has yet appeared. Then a great sigh of relief goes up. I do not think in all that great assembly any man would have wished victory to be torn at the last instant from this plucky little Italian. He has won it. He should have it. Thank God he is on his feet again, the little red legs going incoherently, but drumming hard, driven by a supreme will within. There is a groan as he falls once more, and a cheer as he staggers to his feet, it is horrible and yet fascinating, this struggle between a set purpose and an utterly exhausted frame. Again for a hundred yards he ran in the same furious and yet uncertain gait. Then again he collapsed, kind hands saving him from a heavy fall. He was within a few yards of my seat. Amid stooping figures and grasping hands I caught a glimpse of the haggard yellow face, the glazed, expressionless eyes the lank black hair streaked across the brow. Surely he is done now. He cannot rise again. From under the archway has darted the second runner. Hayes, stars and stripes on his breast, going gallantly, well within his strength. There is only twenty yards to do, if the Italian can do it. He staggered up, no trace of intelligence upon his set face, and again the red legs broke into their strange automatic amble. Will he fall again? No, he sways, he balances, and then he is through the tape and into a score of friendly arms. He has gone to the extreme of human endurance. No Roman of the prime ever bore himself better than Durando of the Olympic of 1908. The great breed is not yet extinct. Of course, the prize went to the American, as his rival had been helped but the sympathy of the crowd, and I am sure of every sporting American present, went out to the little Italian. I not only wrote Durando up, 
but I started a subscription for him in the Daily Mail, which realised over £300, a fortune in his Italian village, so that he was able to start a baker's shop which he could not have done on an Olympic medal. My wife made the presentation in English, which he could not understand. He answered in Italian, which we could not understand, but I think we really did understand each other all the same. There is no denying that the American team were very unpopular in London, though the unpopularity was not national, for the stadium was thick with American flags. Everyone admitted that they were a splendid lot of athletes, but they were not wisely handled, and I saw with my own eyes that they did things which would not have been tolerated if done by an English team in New York. However, there may well have been some want of tact on both sides, and causes at work of which the public knew nothing. When I consider the Dunraven Yacht Race, and then these Olympic Games, I am by no means assured that sport has that international effect for good, which some people have claimed for it. I wonder whether any of the old Grecian wars had their real origin in the awards at Olympia. I may add that we had a dozen or so of the American boys down to Windlesham, where we had a very pleasant day together. I found them all excellent fellows. I put up a billiard Olympic prize, and one of them bore it off with him. The whole incident was very pleasant. My work for a few years after my marriage ran largely in the direction of drama, and if it was not lucrative, it at least provided us with a good deal of amusement and excitement. In the case of one venture, this excitement became a little too poignant, though all ended well in the end. I had dramatised Rodney Stone under the name of the House of Temperley, with all the ring scenes and prize fights included, and treated in the most realistic fashion. We had an excellent boxing instructor who took one of the smaller parts and who not only fought himself, but trained the others to a remarkable degree of skill. So realistic was it that when on the first night the bully, Burks, after a long encounter, went down with a crash from a fine raking uppercut, there was an involuntary groan from the whole house, which meant as clearly as could be, There now, you have killed a man for our amusement. It was really incredibly well done, and I could never have believed that such scenes could be so cleverly faked though it was not always done with impunity, for Rex Davis, who played Gloucester Dick, assured me that he lost a tooth and broke both a finger and a rib during his engagement. The play itself was unequal, but was so very novel and sensational in its best scenes that it should have been a considerable success. I found no manager who would take the risk, and I had myself to take the Adelphi Theatre for a six-month's lease, at a rent which with the company worked out at about £600 a week. As on the top of this the production cost about £2,000, it will be seen that I was plunging rather deep. And luck did not favour us. The Ferrari for boxing had not yet set in. Ladies were afraid to come and imagined it would be a brutal spectacle. Those who did come were exhilarated beyond measure, but the prejudice still weighed heavily against us. Then there came one of those theatrical slumps when everything goes wrong, and finally King Edward died, and that killed it outright. It was a very serious situation. I still had the theatre upon my hands. I might sublet it, or I might not. If I did not, the expense was simply ruinous. It was under these circumstances that, as I have already said, I wrote and rehearsed The Speckled Band, 
in record time and so saved the situation. The real fault of this play was that in trying to give Holmes a worthy antagonist, I overdid it and produced a more interesting personality in the villain. The terrible ending was also against it. However, it was a considerable success and saved a difficult, almost a desperate situation. Yet another theatrical venture was my Fires of Fate, some of which is certainly the best dramatic work that I have ever done. It was unlucky as it was produced in a very hot summer. I carried it at my own expense through the two impossible holiday months, but when Lewis Waller, who played the hero, returned from a provincial tour to London, he was keen on some new play, and my fires were never really burned out. I fancy sometimes that they might even now flame up again if given a chance. I stage-managed most of this play myself, and with curious results. There are certain dramatic conventionalities which can only be broken through by one who is not himself an actor. There was a scene where a number of helpless tourists, men and women, were brutally ill-treated by Arabs. The brutality in rehearsal was conventional. I made the Arabs get imitation whips and cudgels and really savaged the poor travellers. The effect was novel and appalling. There was a young Welsh officer in the front of the stalls who was a friend of my brother's. He held both the VC and the DSO. So stirred was he by the sight that he could hardly be restrained from clambering onto the stage in order to help the unhappy tourists. The end of that act, when the drove of bleeding captives are led away, and you hear the monotonous song of the Arabs as they march, and you see Lewis Waller, who has been left for dead, struggle up on his elbow and signal across the Nile for assistance, was one which brought the whole house to its feet. Such moments to a dramatist give a thrill of personal satisfaction, such as the most successful novelist never can feel. There is no more subtle pleasure, if you are really satisfied with your work, than to sit in the shadow of a box and watch not the play, but the audience. I had one other dramatic venture, Brigadier Gerard, which also was mildly successful. In fact, I have never known failure on the stage, save in the case of the unfortunate Jane Annie. Lewis Waller played the Brigadier and a splendid dashing hussar he made. It was a glorious performance. I remember that in this play also I ran up against the conventionalities of the stage. I had a group of hussar officers, the remnants of the regiment which had gone through Napoleon's last campaign. When it came to the dress rehearsal, I found them, to my horror, dressed up in brand new uniforms of chestnut and silver. Good heavens, I cried, this is not a comic opera. What do you want done? asked Waller. Why, said I, these men are warriors, not ballet dancers. They have been out in all weathers, day and night, for months. Every scrap of truth goes out of the play if they appear like that. The uniforms had cost over a hundred pounds, but I covered them with mud and dust and tore holes in them. The result was that with begrimed faces I got a band of real Napoleonic soldiers. Waller himself insisted on retaining his grease paint and his nice new clothes. But I am sure every man in the audience, if not every woman, would have liked him better as I had made the others. Poor Lewis Waller! There was some strange and wonderful blood in his veins. He was a glorious fellow, and his premature death a great blow to our stage. What virility! What a face and figure! They called him the flapper's idol, and it reflects credit on the flapper, for where could she find a less sickly and more manly type? He caught his fatal illness in serving the soldiers. 
One of his greatest possessions was his voice. He came down to Windlesham once, and as he was reciting in the music room, that wonderful resonant voice chanced to catch the exact note, which corresponded to the curve of all the glass lampshades on the walls. They all started thrilling as a wine glass does when it is touched. I could quite believe after that that the matter could be disintegrated by sound, if the sound was strong enough. I am not clear what blood ran in Waller's veins, Hebrew or Basque or both. I only know that it went to make a very wonderful man. His intense feeling about everything that he did was one of his characteristics, and no doubt a cause of his success. It did not carry him far in golf, however. I remember hearing him as he approached the last tee mutter, God, give me one good drive. I fear, however, that the betting was against it. In 1910 a fresh task opened up before me. It arose from my being deeply moved by reading some of the evidence concerning the evil rule, not of Belgium, but of the King of the Belgians in the Congo. I examined this evidence carefully before I accepted it, and I assured myself that it was supported by five British consuls and by Lord Cromer, as well as by travellers of many races, Belgian, French, American, Swedish and others. An attempt has been made since to minimise the facts and to pretend that Roger Casement had been at the back of the agitation for sinister purposes of his own. This contention is quite untenable, and the evidence for the atrocities is overwhelming, and from very many sources, the Belgians themselves being among the best witnesses. I put in some two years working with Mr Morell, and occasionally lecturing in the country upon this question, and it was certainly the efforts of the Congo Association which we represented that eventually brought the question to the notice of that noble man, King Albert, which meant setting it right so that the colony is now, so far as I know, very well managed. Casement, whom I shall always regard as a fine man afflicted with mania, has met his tragic end, and Morell's views upon the war have destroyed the feelings which I had for him, but I shall always maintain that they both did noble work in championing the wrongs of those unhappy and helpless Negroes. My own book, The Crime of the Congo, which was translated into all European languages, had also, I hope, some influence towards that end. In the early summer of 1912, I had a telegram from Lord Northcliffe, which let me in for about as much trouble as any communication which I have ever received. It was to the effect that Britain must regain her place among the athletic nations, which had been temporarily eclipsed by the Olympic Games at Stockholm, and that I was the one man in Great Britain who could rally round me the various discordant forces which had to be united and used. This was very complimentary, but it was Lord Northcliffe's sole contribution to the matter for a very long time, and I was left to my own devices entirely in carrying out a complex task. So badly coordinated were Northcliffe's papers that I had some of them actually attacking me while I was working on their chief suggestion. When I examined, I found chaos. On the one hand was the British Olympic Committee, a most sound and respectable body under Lord Desborough. In some ways they had lost touch with press and public, and were generally in disfavour, though really they had done their best. On the other hand was the Times, which had worked itself into a fury about the misdeeds of the Committee, and had set a tone which poisoned the whole press against them. Lord Northcliffe would have nothing to do with anything which emanated from the committee. The committee defied Lord Northcliffe. 
it was clear that this had to be cleared up as a preliminary, and the matter took enough diplomacy to have settled the Balkan question. I called upon the committee and suggested that an independent body be formed on which they could be represented. To this they agreed. I then called on the Times and said, You are no longer dealing with the old Olympic Committee, but with a new body. Do you agree to this? Yes, that was all in order. I may have omitted the trifling fact that the new body did not yet exist. I then asked Mr Studd, the famous cricketer of old and head of the Polytechnic, to help me to form the new body. We soon had a very effective one, including several leading athletes and Lord Forster, now Governor-General of Australia. I served, of course, on the committee, and soon we were in touch with everyone and all promised to go smoothly. But presently a huge mistake was made. I don't wish to represent myself as the founder of all wisdom, and no doubt I make as many slips as my fellows, but that particular one would never have been made had I been present. But I was called away and was out of the country at that crucial committee meeting. It had been already determined that an appeal to the public over all our names should be issued. The amount had not been discussed, but in my own mind I had thought that £10,000 would suffice. I was horrified, therefore, when I returned from my holiday to find that they had appealed for £100,000. The sum was absurd and at once brought upon us from all sides the charge of developing professionalism. My position was very difficult. If I protested now it would go far to ruin the appeal. After all it might succeed. I could only fall into line with the others and do my best for the sake of the cause to defend a policy which I looked upon as mistaken. We actually collected about £7,000 and finally as we found that the general feeling was either hostile or apathetic we handed over this sum to the Olympic Committee. Then came the war and so in any case our labour was in vain for the games were to be in Berlin in 1916. We were all playing another game by then. This matter was spread over a year of my life and was the most barren thing that I ever touched, for nothing came of it, and I cannot trace that I ever received one word of thanks from any human being. I was on my guard against Northcliffe telegrams after that. I remember one curious episode about that time. I was staying in a Northumberland Avenue hotel, and I walked out at night in pensive mood, strolling down the embankment and watching the great dark river with the gleam of the lights upon it. Suddenly a man passed me, walking very rapidly and muttering in an incoherent way. He gave me an impression of desperation, and I quickened my pace and followed him. With a rush he sprang up on the parapet and seemed to be about to throw himself into the river. I was just in time to catch his knees and to pull him down, he struggled hard to get up, but I put my arm through his and led him across the road. There I reasoned with him and examined into the cause of his troubles. He had had some domestic quarrel, I believe, but his main worry was his business, which was that of a baker. He seemed a respectable man, and the case seemed genuine, so I calmed him down, gave him such immediate help as I could, and made him promise to return home and to keep in touch with me afterwards. When the excitement of the incident was over, I had grave doubts as to whether I had not been the victim of a clever swindler. I was considerably relieved, therefore, to get a letter, a few days later, giving name and address, and obviously genuine. I lost sight of the case after that. 
Another matter which preoccupied me much in the years before the war, and preoccupies me still, is the reform of our divorce laws. I was president of the Reform Union for ten years, and have only just vacated the position in order to make room for a far more efficient successor in Lord Birkenhead. I am quite alive to all the arguments of our opponents, and quite understand that laxity in the marriage tie is an evil. But I cannot understand why England should lag behind every other Protestant country in the world, and even behind Scotland, so that unions which are obviously disgusting and degrading are maintained in this country, while they can be dissolved in our colonies or abroad. As to morality, I cannot, I fear, admit that our morality here is in the least better than in Scandinavia, Holland or Germany, where they have more rational laws. I think that in some states in America they have pushed divorce to an extreme, but even in America I should say that married happiness and morality generally are quite as high as with us. The House of Lords has shown itself to be more liberal in this matter than the Commons, possibly because the latter have a fear of organised church influence in their constituencies. One of several questions which makes me not sorry to see Labour, with its larger outlook, in power for a time in this country. Our marriage laws, our land laws, the cheapening of justice, and many other things have long called out for reform, and if the old parties will not do it, then we must seek some new one which will. During these long and happy years, when the smooth current of our national life was quietly sliding towards Niagara, I did not lose my interest in psychic matters, but I cannot say that I increased my grasp of the religious or spiritual side of the subject. I read, however, and investigated, whenever the chance arose. A gentleman had arranged a series of psychical seances in a large studio in North London, and I attended them, the mediums being Cecil Husk and Craddock. They left a very mixed impression upon my mind, for in some cases I was filled with suspicion, and in others I was quite sure that the result was genuine. The possibility that a genuine medium may be unscrupulous, and that when these very elusive forces fail to act, he may simulate them, is one which greatly complicates the whole subject. But one can only concentrate upon what one is sure is true, and try to draw conclusions from that. I remember that many sheeted ghosts walked about in the dim light of a red lamp on these occasions, and that some of them came close to me, within a foot of my face, and illuminated their features by the light of a phosphorescent slate held below them. One splendid Arab, whom the medium called Abdullah, came in this fashion. He had a face like an idealised W.G. Grace, swarthy, black-bearded and dignified, rather larger than human. I was looking hard at this strange being, its nose a few inches from my own, and was wondering whether it could be some very clever bust of wax, when in an instant the mouth opened and a terrific yell was emitted. I nearly jumped out of my chair. I saw clearly the gleaming teeth and the red tongue. It certainly seemed that he had read my thought and had taken this very effective way of answering it. Some of the excitements of my life during these and the subsequent years were due to financial entanglements which arose from a certain speculative element in my own nature, depending rather upon the love of adventure than upon any hope of gain. If, when I earned money, I had dug a hole in the garden and buried it there, I should be a much richer man today. I can hardly blame the punter on the racecourse when I remember the outside chances 
which I have taken in the past, in every possible form of speculation. But I have the advantage over the mere gambler in this, that every pound of my money went to develop something or other, and line the pocket of the working man, who, by the way, when he grumbles over the profits of the capitalist, never even alludes to his losses. If a balance sheet were struck, it would be interesting to see what, if any, is the exact margin of profit. It is true that sometimes I have indulged in a pure gamble, but never for any sum which would hurt me. I have painful memories of a guano island off South Africa, on which our treasure-seekers were not even allowed to land, though every bird's nest was rumoured to contain a diamond. The Spanish galleon in the Bay of Tobermory also took treasure rather than gave it, and the return for my shares was a lump of glass and a rusted bar. That was more than ever I had from certain spots in Kalgoorlie and Coolgardie and other alleged gold-bearers, which have nearly all been gold-consumers, so far as I am concerned. I fear some of those mines were like that legendary one where the manager, getting a cable which ordered him to start crushing, replied, I have nothing to crush until you return samples. I have played my involuntary part also in the development of the Rand and Rhodesia, from those early and unsophisticated days when I misread the quotation and meaning to invest £60 was faced next morning with a bill for £900. Occasionally it is true that I backed a winner, but as a rule I must confess that I was not judicious in my selections. But it was at home that I expended myself most freely. I saw the enormous possibilities of Kent coal, which even now are not fully understood, but I did not sufficiently weigh the impossibilities, which are that an enterprise can be successful, which is wildly financed and extravagantly handled. I and many others lost our money, sinking the shafts which may bring fortunes to our successors. I even descended one thousand feet through the chalk to see with my own eyes that the coal was in situ. It seems to have had the appearance and every other quality of coal, save that it was incombustible, and when a dinner was held by the shareholders, which was to be cooked by local coal, it was necessary to send out and buy something which would burn. There were, however, lower strata which were more sensitive to heat. Besides Kent coal, I lost very heavily in running a manufacturing plant in Birmingham, into which I was led by those successive stages in which you are continually trying to save what you have already invested until the situation becomes so serious that you drop it in terror. We turned from bicycles to munitions during the war and actually worked hard the whole four years with a hundred artisans making needful war material without ever declaring a penny of dividend. This, I should think, must be a record and at least no one could call us profiteers. The firm was eventually killed dead by the successive strikes of the moulders and the miners. It is amazing how one set of workmen will ruin another set, without apparently any remonstrance from the sufferers. Another bad egg was a sculpture machine for architectural work, which really had great possibilities, but we could not get the orders. I was chairman of this company, and it cost me two years of hard work and anxiety, ending up by my paying the balance out of my own pocket so that we might wind up in an honourable way. It was a dismal experience with many side adventures attached to it, which would make a sensational novel. Such are some of the vicissitudes which cannot be disregarded in a retrospect of life. 
for they form a very integral and absorbing part of it. I have had my ill luck, and I have had my good. Amid the latter, I count the fact that I have been for 21 years a director of Raphael Tuck & Co., without the least cloud to darken the long and pleasant memory. I have also been for many years chairman of Besson's famous brass instrument firm. I think a man should know all sides of life, and he has missed a very essential side if he has not played his part in commerce. In investments, too, I would not imply that I have always been unfortunate. My speculative adventures are over, and I can at least say that unless the British Empire goes down, I shall be able to retain enough for our modest needs. End of chapter 22